Well, join me, if you would, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians 10. Several years ago, a man by the name of Paul Hebert, who is a missions professor and former missionary to India, wrote an article called The Flaw of the Excluded Middle. And he opened up his article with the following story. He said, one day an Indian man named Yalea came to see him. And when asked why he had come, he said, uh, th- this Indian man said that smallpox had come to the village a few weeks earlier and had taken a number of children. And doctors trained in what Western medicine had tried to halt the plague, uh, but without success. And so finally, in desperation, the vil- village elders had sent for a diviner who told them that museum, the goddess of smallpox, she sounds really special, was angry with the village. And so to satisfy her and to stop the plague, the village would have to perform the water buffalo sacrifice. So the village elders went around uh, from home to home, household to household in the village to raise money to purchase the water buffalo for the sacrifice. And when they came to the Christian homes, uh, the Christians refused to give them anything, saying that it was against their religious beliefs. And the leaders naturally were angry and they pointed out that the goddess would not be satisfied until every single household in the village gave something as a token offering. It could even be small, even just a small coin. But the Christians refused to do that. And when they refused, the elders of the community forbade them to draw water from the village wells. And as they went to the marketplace, the merchants refused to sell them food. And so all of a sudden their lives got a bit complicated. And in the end, some of the Christians had wanted to stop the harassment that was going on by giving the small coin. Let's just give it and be done. Telling God that they did not mean it. But Yalea, the man who had come to this missionary's office, refused to let his fellow villagers do that. We can't do that. Question for you. If you lived there in that village and kids were dying of smallpox and there was all this pressure in the community just to give even a token offering, what would you have done? Would you have refused to contribute anything? Nope, I cannot do that, period. And I will not. No matter if you let me draw from the well, no matter if you let me buy and sell food, I'm not doing it. Or would you perhaps have given something and rationalized it to avoid ostracism? Maybe going, you know what? (laughs) Whoever this museum goddess is, the goddess of smallpox, I don't even think she's real. She's not a god. It's nothing. I don't want to offend my neighbors and my communities. I want my community. I want to have gospel opportunities with them. Just give the quarter and move on. What would you have done? I think I could maybe find myself rationalizing to to do that that second one. You know what, honey? Let's just, here's the coin. Just put our heads down and move on. Hebert goes on to talk in his article about what he calls the flaw of of the excluded middle. And it's basically the idea that most Westerners, like here in Canada, simply give little credit to gods, demons, spirits, ghosts, rituals, curses, artifacts, uh, those sorts of things, while much of the rest of the world acknowledges them. And those brought up in Eastern animistic or mystic religions give special attention and credit to all of those forces. And in the West, we kind of explain everything like that in the middle away because we've got science on the one hand and, well, this happens scientifically and logically and we can explain it. And then we have uh, religion and that's kind of our category for the supernatural. Uh, and, but yet there's this whole middle realm that we see in animistic cultures that here in the West, we're just like, no, I don't, that's, we just don't give much credit to that. Could it be that 
all of those things, the spirit world of gods and demons actually does exist right here in the West. But perhaps they've taken, simply taken on different forms and say they would in, in a place like Haiti, where it's all very obvious and surface and out there. If so, what forms have those things, things taken here in the West? What do they look like? Our text today deals with something associated with that realm, idolatry, uh, in a, a particular form of that something that um, is quite pervasive around the world, and I think it's also pervasive here in the West. Maybe we just don't see it. The Corinthians posed a question to Paul that went something like this. What should we do about meat offered to idols? And there were three different settings that Paul's addressing on this issue. He began by answering that question way back in chapter 8, verse 1. And their question caused Paul, as he launched into answering that question, it caused him to address the larger topic of Christian freedom or liberty. And now he's kind of coming to, coming to the end of, of that discussion, and he's going to conclude and will tell the Corinthians what to do about meat offered to idol, uh, idols in a temple. Should you go sit down in an idol's temple at a table in there and eat with your coworkers, Or be there for a celebration? So he's going to start with eating meat in an idol's temple and then move. Uh, next week we'll look at eat, eating meat in a marketplace and then eating meat at a home. Uh, but regarding that first arena, eating meat in a pagan temple, Paul warns that idolatry has absolutely no place in your life. No place in mine. No place in the life of a Christian. And so let's jump into this text and, and see if we can't work through it together. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 14. I'll read down through verse 22. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This morning, we want to look at uh, several warnings about idolatry from this text, six of them. Uh, first, idolatry must be fled. That's his first statement, and it's basically the big idea of the text. Look at verse 14 again. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Uh, that verse needs to be read in the larger context of verse 13, uh, where God promised that with every temptation that, that comes into your life, that God allows, God also sends with that temptation a way of escape. God always is faithful to provide a way out. And for the Corinthians, there most likely would have been a huge pull towards idolatry in the venues where that took place, the, these pagan temples. Idolatry was part and parcel of their culture. Uh, pagan temples would have been the places where many people celebrated things like birthdays. 
or weddings and anniversaries or uh, maybe your business had really done well that year and there was some successful business venture and everybody would, let's go to this pagan temple and let's celebrate, let's give thanks to the gods. Or perhaps after the harvest had come in and that went well and uh, people would again into the temples to worship and give thanks. And if you wanted to have a social life, I would imagine that you needed to be comfortable going to these idol temples where sacrifices to pagan gods took place. This is part of the culture. This is what people do. For the Corinthian Christians, that pull would have been very strong. And God's telling them, and he's telling us, there's always a way of escape. Do not do that. Take that way of escape. Run away. And his words are, flee from idolatry. Stay away from pagan temples. Back in chapter 6, verse 18, God actually said the exact same thing about another sin. He said there, flee from sexual immorality. And you may recall that when we look at that, looked at that text, we noted uh, that there are some temptations where you simply cannot stand and try to fight it. Because you'll lose every time. And what God wants you to do is run. And that's what God tells you to do with sins like sexual immorality and idolatry. Just run. Get out of there. And we have this excellent example of that with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. He doesn't stick around and try to fight it. He just runs. And God's saying that same type of thing about idolatry here. Uh, you think about it if you lived at the base of a volcano. And that volca- volcano was uh, sat there dormant for decades, if not hundreds of years. You lived in that community. Your, your parents lived in that community. Your grandparents, your great-grandparents, everybody lived at the foot of that mountain and nothing's ever happened. That's home. And then all of a sudden, news comes that there, there's starting to be rumblings and the thought is that eventually this thing's going to erupt. And all of a sudden, it's seriously, like, this is going to happen. We don't know when, but it could happen at any time. What would you do? Oh, well, I've always lived here parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. I'm not going anywhere. This is my house. These are my cars. This is my community. I'm staying right here. I don't care what happens. That would be stupid. If you knew that the volcano was about to erupt, you would run. It would be absolute folly to stay put. And that's the type of thing that God says about this sin. Listen, don't be that foolish. Don't think that you can flirt with this. Don't think that you can be involved in this in some way and it not come back to bite you spiritually. You've got to run. And so before he gets into the, uh, the details, Paul simply tells us that idolatry must be fled. Now look with me at verse 15. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say or what I'm about to say to you. Paul is about to unpack what I think is a very simple argument that God's people shouldn't have any trouble understanding. It's just probably not something that they've thought about. And I think it reveals that some of these things aren't things that we think about. But the argument should make sense to sensible people. Common sense says that eating sacrificial meat in a pagan temple is idolatry. So warning number two, idolatry is a problem. He's going to go on to explain because of your current unions. What unions? Those unions that are represented by the Lord's table. We just went together to the Lord's table a couple weeks back. And this text asks you to think about the unions that are represented by that table. And compare and contrast those with the unions represented at a pagan God's table in a pagan temple. Paul starts by asking us to consider our current unions. Who is the Christian united to? 
Well, as I said, the, the Christians' unions are very clearly represented at the Lord's table. We sometimes, we use an interesting word for it. We call the Lord's table communion. There's a, there are unions there. There is community that is shared. Unions that we share together. We sometimes call it communion because it represents the Christian's unions, one of which is vertical and the other is horizontal. Who is the Christian united to? Well, vertically, you've been joined to Christ. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, referring to the cup of the Lord's table. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or a fellowship or a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Drinking the cup in the Lord's Supper does not establish your relationship to Christ, but what it does is it reflects that connection. It's called the cup of blessing here. Uh, you may have noticed that every time we, we take the Lord's Supper, and before each of the elements, we pray. Be, before we partake of the cup together, someone comes up here and prays and gives thanks and blesses and thanks God for what he's done through Christ in his shed blood. It's a cup of blessing. And as we take it, we bless, praise, and thank God for it. As you take the cup in the Lord's Supper, it's a recognition. You're saying, I am a beneficiary of Christ's blood. Through my union with Jesus Christ, I've been united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm a participant in that. And as you take the broken bread, it's a, it's a recognition that Christ's body was broken for you. And you are a beneficiary of his broken body through your union with Christ. You're connected to none other than Jesus Christ in the Lord's table every time we come to it, which is typically about once a month here. The Lord's table is a recurring reminder of that connection, that you are connected to Christ. And because of that connection, you must be very, very careful what other connections you establish. And that's ultimately where Paul is going, and it's specifically along the lines of idolatry. But the, the broader principle would also be true. My connection with Jesus Christ impacts what other connections I can have. There's a vertical union represented, but there's not only a, a, a vertical union represented at the Lord's table, there's another one. There's also a horizontal union. You've been joined to God's people. Look at verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That verse is, is maybe a little bit confusing, but the big idea we see the unity of God's people that we've been united in Christ. When you become united to Christ the head, you become united to Christ's body, the church. You have union or community or communion with the people of Christ's body. We're one body sharing in the same Lord. Uh, it's interesting. I don't think you've ever seen us do the Lord's Supper here and say, hey, why don't you all do it on your own? Why don't you get a couple friends together and do the Lord's Supper? No, we do the, the Lord's Supper when we all gather together on a Lord's Day and we take it together as a body. We don't take the Lord's Supper by ourselves. We take it with the family. 
Don't fall into the trap, by the way, as, as we would come to the Lord's table at any time thinking that it's individualistic. I, I, again, I think that's so much of our Western mentality. We sit down and there is an individual element where I'm searching my heart and I'm trying to make sure that I'm right with God and there's no unconfessed sin. But as we approach the Lord's table, anytime I think we need to remember this is not an individualistic thing. This is communal. You are connected to Christ's people, and, and, and that is portrayed through the Lord's Supper. The Lord's table is a recurring reminder of that connection. And so we come as a family, gathered around the table, and Christ is both the head of that table, and he is the host. And as Paul moves through this argument, what he's explaining is that idolatry in any form is a problem because of, of your current unions, your union to Christ and your union with the body, God's people. Next time you come to the Lord's table, I would just invite you to consider the unions that the table represents. It's important that you be in vertical fellowship with Christ. And it's also important that you be in horizontal fellowship with the family. And whatever stands between either of those must be rectified. It has to be made right. We're participants together. I think it's also important for us to remember that the union that you and I have with Christ and his people is a living, breathing union. It's not a union, uh, maybe in the sense of my son has Legos and those all snap together and those are hard, inanimate objects. That picture doesn't quite portray the the living dynamic at play, even though God would use stones to, to talk about the church as a building. But what he often uses is an image of a body with muscles and ligaments and joints and it's living and it's breathing. And what that means is that whatever you do impacts the whole body. What you do affects them and and you should think about each other when you think about your personal involvement in certain activities. They're connected. The third warning about idolatry, idolatry is easily rationalized away as nothing. And I think we do well to remember that. And that's what was apparently going on in Corinth. And in this next verse, Paul's kind of going to say, hey, let me help connect some specific dots so that you see what's going on. Look at verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. As God unfolds his argument, he now asks you to take a look at the Jewish people and how their sacrificial meals work. They often uh, sacrifice an animal to God on an altar, and then they would sit down and even enjoy a portion of that animal together, a portion of that meat together in recognition of God. And in many ways, that's exactly what was going on in Idol's temple. Everybody sits down, and yeah, there's a ceremony to the pagan God and all that, but we're mostly just eating and having a great time. And uh, maybe uh, the the cup and the, the meat was blessed and prayers of blessing were said, much like we saw in the previous verse. And Paul argues that for a Jewish Jewish person to join in a Jewish sacrificial meal, he was also joining or taking part in what was happening on the altar at the same time. Food would have been burning there on the altar in honor of the Lord. And that altar and the sacrifice represented service to God and devotion to Him, gratitude for His goodness and so many other things. And eating in the meal participated in all of that. Eating sacrificed food, Paul says, represents fellowship. And he's trying to connect the dots for these people where where they're not seeing it. 
What's the point? Well, the, the big point that he's making is that association with certain things causes us to share in the spiritual realities that underlie those things. And Paul is making a simple connection that, as I mentioned, the Corinthians had missed. Uh, it wasn't something they had considered. Remember back in chapter 8, in their minds, it was pretty simple. Okay, Paul, it's like this. An idol has no real existence. That carved statue, that stone, it's just a rock. It's just a tree. And there's no God but one. Chapter 8, verse 4. There, there are no other gods but the one true God. It's that simple. And the, the arguments that they were making were accurate, but they weren't complete. And therefore, many of them felt that they could go to a pagan's temple and sit down and eat meat that had been offered to an idol. It just wasn't a big deal. And I think we sometimes miss the connection as well in our day, and we, we're, we find ourselves rationalizing th- certain things away, much like the story that I started with. I'm, if I'm there in that Indian village, I can get around that mentally, and I can maybe even find a way to do it. God wants you to be extra careful that you don't fall into that trap. And I think one of the things with, with this passage, we look at it and go, wow, I mean, I could see if, if this message was preached in a place like Haiti or on some forward mission field where people were, they'd lived in a world like this every day, this message would really, really hit home. But we open up this text and we're kind of like, um, what do we do with this? <laughs> Even preaching it, I feel that way a little bit. Where, where does the rubber... Uh, meet the road on this for us. And I think one of the things if the, that this text could help us with is just to get us to slow down and think about the various things that we're engaged in and if there's any spiritual connections that we better be careful of. And if a text like this could just slow us down and cause us to think a little bit harder, I think we would be greatly, greatly helped in our spiritual walk. Because it's so easy to rationalize. We totally miss connections and rationalize them away or just completely not see them. Idolatry is easily rationalized away as nothing. And so we need to be very, very careful. Uh, we, if you find yourself saying things like, oh, you know, it's, it's just a cultural event. I mean, I know I want to go. It, it, there's so much culture here and they're going to do this thing. They're going to do this little ritual, but it doesn't mean anything to us Um, We worship Jesus Christ. We're believers. Not a big deal. If you ever find yourself in those thought patterns, you're probably off. And you probably need to slow down because that's exactly what was going on in Corinth. You do not want to be a part of a worship occasion to some pagan God, even if you know that God is nothing. It's a big deal. Next warning about idolatry. Number four, idolatry is satanic. And it joins you to demons. Look at verses 19 and 20. What do I imply then? Paul's made a big deal. Like you're you're participants in the altar. Paul, what are you getting at? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul clarifies, is it about the meat? No. Is it, is it something about the idol? Nope. You're right. All those things are nothing. But idolatry is demonic. 
And these so-called gods and their temples are the habitations, Paul says, of demons. When you walk to the front door of a pagan's uh, temple and you ring the doorbell, who opens up? Whose house is that? Whose habitation is that? According to Paul, a demon's. When you go to your co-worker's wedding celebration at, at the pagan temple and sit down to eat the food that was just sacrificed with thanksgiving to a pagan god, you've joined yourself with evil. Who's the host at the Lord's table? It's Christ. Who's the host at the table of a pagan god? It's Satan and his demons. Is Christ's table, think about what we do, is Christ's table a dead ritual to you? Oh, I certainly hope not. And maybe you've fallen into that trap, but I think for most people here, it is a very, very precious thing. When we gather together on Good Friday and, and we preach the message of the cross and we gather around the table, is that a dead ritual? No. Absolutely not. And on the flip side of that, is the enemy's table a dead ritual? Paul's arguing no, absolutely not. In that setting, one is not merely eating with friends, but engaged in idolatry. And Paul is forbidding any kind of relationship with the demonic whatsoever. We find every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remind people this is for God's people. This is for people who have union with Jesus. We forbid unbelievers from the Lord's table because they have no connection to Christ. And on the flip side of that, Christ forbids Christians from idolatrous tables because believers have no connection with demons. Idolatry is satanic and it joins you to demons. Uh, again, where does, where does the rubber maybe start to connect with the road for us? Well, maybe some things to think about here in the West. Should a Christian take part in the mass of a Catholic church? Is that Christ's table? Does Christ sit at the head of that table with his family? And if not, then who's the host of that? Based on this text. And if those realities are at play, should a Christian have any part in taking part in that kind of worship? You say, oh, it's not worship. It's just a dead ritual. That's what the Corinthians were saying. I think about things like interfaith worship services. Can a Christian take part of those? Well, there's evangelicals over here and there's Buddhists over here and Islam and all, and all these things are mixed together and we're all just worshiping. Can a Christian do that? Participate in that kind of worship? No. I, I think we have some interesting dynamics that can sometimes uh, really get our head spinning a little bit. Things like community prayer events. Uh, you look at those, you get invited to those. I certainly get invited to those sometimes, even right here at Beaumont. And I always feel a little bit of angst. Uh, I don't know, like who's, <laughs> who's a part of that? Just a few gospel preaching evangelicals. I mean, there are other churches in town that are preaching the gospel. Or is this kind of this big mixed thing of sharing the platform and it's just all in good faith? And some of those type of events, I think we're wise to just slow down and ask, okay, what are the dynamics at play here? 
And I want to think through those at least before I participate and make sure that I'm not crossing any lines in any territory that I shouldn't be in. Uh, what I refer to as the flaw of the ex excluded middle at the beginning, where here in the West we just don't recognize this whole other world. How does that show up here in the West? Do you think it's possible that a lot of that actually shows up in formal religion? And actually even within things like cults? Um, where at times in those cults, it's actually men that are being worshipped in an idolatrous way, even if it's not quite the same as a pagan temple in Corinth. So maybe what I need to think through is, well, maybe I'd be just interested to go to a service. Well, maybe with some of those things, we need to just back up and go, is this a worship event? I mean, I'm not worshipping. Yeah, but is it a worship event? Yes or no? And some of those things, we need to make sure that, that we don't dabble in a place that we don't belong and stay away from the demonic. And I think the reality is in a lot of those settings, in those cult settings, even if they have all the trappings of formal Western religion, they're demonic. And that worship is demonic. The stakes are really, really high. And so we're given a fifth warning about idolatry. Idolatry cancels your fellowship with Christ and his people. Look at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You cannot take part of the Lord's table and the table of demons at the same time, God says. You cannot have communion with the Lord and his people and with evil all at the same time. And it's interesting, in our English versions, uh, at least in the ESV here, the verse uses the phrase, you cannot. Quite literally, it's, you are not able it, it, the, the text is highlighting that there's an impossibility at play. You're not able to share in both forms of fellowship simultaneously. It's not possible to share in fellowship with Christ and at the same time share in fellowship with demons. And I think what's happening, much like the story I related at the very beginning or what was going on in Corinth, is well, we sit down at the Lord's table. Our, our union, our fellowship is with Him and with His people. All that stuff's a bunch of Ridiculous nonsense. And because I have my fellowship with Christ, I can walk into that setting and I'm unfazed, I'm unhurt by that. We might think that our fellowship with Christ, represented by the Lord's table, somehow neutralizes whatever is going on in that other world, at least for us. But Paul argues here, no, it doesn't work that way. It actually only works one direction. The Corinthians may have thought that their fellowship with Christ because of it, that they could go into these pagan temples and it would neutralize what was going on with demons and they were safe there. Paul says, listen guys, it is literally the other way around. You're canceling out your fellowship with Christ and, I, and his people when you walk in there. So he says, flee idolatry. Idolatry cancels your fellowship with Christ and his people. Um, you might wonder... Why you don't feel close to Christ or his people right now, or maybe why you even feel a little bit spiritually numb or significantly numb. And if there's sin in your life in any way, shape, or form, that's enough to hinder that fellowship. 
But maybe it's worth asking, have you been engaged in any form of idolatry or taken place in any form of worship setting that you didn't belong there? Do you realize what that's done to your fellowship with Christ? It's hindered that. It's impacted it. And God wants you to, God, maybe I just realized, I didn't even realize what I was doing. God, will you forgive me? I want to be restored to fellowship with you and your people at the table where I belong. Sixth and final warning about idolatry. Idolatry brings God's fierce jealousy. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Uh, This passage is about your allegiance. Total allegiance to Christ is required. God says that he's a jealous God who will tolerate no rivals, and the worship of Jesus is incompatible with the worship of anything else. And if you want a historical example of that, all you need to do is look at Israel and read your Old Testament, right? Because almost from the first couple pages of the book of Genesis, you you start to see idolatry creeping into the life of God's people. I was just reading um, the beginning chapters of Genesis uh, earlier this month and I was thinking about how Rachel took her father's household gods and sat on them when Laban showed up. I mean, from, from day one in Israel's history, there's this intermixing with the gods. And you follow that story all throughout Israel's history and you start to get to the prophets, the books that we're often trying to make sense of and don't always understand what's going on. Well, what's going on in, those, in the prophets is that God was ultimately disciplining the children of Israel for their idolatry. You saw it throughout the monarchy period. You saw it throughout the judges. You see it everywhere. They just keep intermixing their lives with idolatry. And finally, at the end of the day, God says, enough. And the kingdom of Israel falls. The northern kingdom of Israel falls. And finally, all that's left is the southern kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar marches his army up and lays siege to that city and carries away God's people exile for 70 years. Why did all that happen? Because they were an idolatrous people. And God wasn't going to tolerate that. And they paid a significant price for their allegiance to idolatry. And we're reminded here in this last verse, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Idolatry brings God's fierce, fierce jealousy. Or maybe we would just be wise to, to broaden things a bit. Examine your involvement in questionable activities. Just think about the things that you're involved in. Are any of those things questionable? Are any of those things dangerous? Do any of those things bring you into interaction with the demonic or, or cause you to be in a worship setting, participating in some way, maybe even just by your presence? I think one of the particular realms that you should consider is take a close look at your social activities and the social settings that you participate in because that's actually the focus of these chapters. This pagan temple thing, it's a social setting. It's a cultural setting. It's what everybody does. And so maybe you should look at your social gatherings and uh, your entertainment and your entertainment venues and just ask some hard questions. Are there any connections here to something that I shouldn't have any part of. Maybe ask questions like this. What would it like look like to go over to a demon's house for dinner today? Well, it probably wouldn't look as bad as you might think. 
It didn't for the Corinthians. Oh, it's just this culture. Oh, yeah, they do that thing. <laughs> you know, there's these altars over here, and there's these sacrifices, but it doesn't mean anything to anybody, or if it does, but not to me. I think we're just wise to slow down and examine those things. And some of them we look at, I don't know. But I think if a text like this can just cause us to slow down and go, God, just so you know, my allegiance is first and foremost to you. And I'm going to demonstrate that to the best of my ability by your grace. And will you show me and protect me from any space that I should not be in? Because idolatry has absolutely no place in your life. Would you bow your head with me and close your eyes at this time?